0: Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. We're talking more about Ukraine. We're going to take an angle here that I think has not been covered at all. And we're reaching out to our old friend, good friend, Father Marcel Garnizo, to discuss what the role is of the of the churches in dealing with this Ukrainian conflict, this war in Ukraine that uh, that Russia has launched. Father Marcel, great to talk to you again. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. It's always good to be here. I love hot air.
0: Well, uh, I, I, we always love it when you engage with us. And um, you've been very generous with your time in the past. And, and I, I'm very intrigued by where, what role uh, the catholic church will have in this but more importantly what the orthodox churches are saying about this and you are at this sort of confluence of this you were ordained in moscow you can talk uh, talk to us a little bit about that you've worked with the people um who are on the front lines of this right in terms of the church's response to this on the front lines not on the literal front lines obviously um and uh, are you surprised that there hasn't been more of a response to this
1: THANK YOU, Ed, FOR HAVING ME. Um, I I THINK THE INTERNATIONAL RESPONSE HAS BEEN OVERWHELMING TO THIS WAR OF AGGRESSION THAT PUTIN IS CARRYING OUT. SO OVER 87 COUNTRIES EITHER VOTED OR CO-SPONSORED THE DRAFT UN SECURITY COUNCIL RESOLUTION, WHICH RUSSIA VETOED BECAUSE THEY HAVE VETO POWER. SO THERE'S NO CONFUSION AT THE INTERNATIONAL LEVEL. IN FACT, CHINA DIDN'T EVEN SUPPORT IT. THEY MERELY ABSTAINED, RIGHT? RIGHT. WE HAVE A... Massive humanitarian crisis, about 500,000 refugees fleeing, mainly through Poland, some through Romania, Slovakia, and Hungary, but Poland is completely flooded. I have friends literally at the border helping the refugees. And we have a vicious, lethal attack of Russian forces on the Ukrainian people, particularly cities like Kharkiv and Kiev, which is now being surrounded. We learned today that the Belarusian army is planning to possibly send their own army. Not the Russian army that's stationed in Belarus, but their own soldiers through the north to encircle uh, Kiev and, you know, um, try to seek a surrender or who knows how far Putin will go or destroy Kiev and just completely take over. So it's a real crisis. There's a three mile military convoy moving right now towards Kiev with lethal weapons and putin is buying time waiting for his forces you know to conglomerate in order to try to you know take over kiev um so it's a very serious situation um the church of course uh, i think the biggest problem right now is the deafening silence of the russian orthodox church and in particular Patriarch Kirill. and after the russian forces had already started to move into ukraine he was congratulating putin on what is known as the defender of the fatherland day and in there he said quote i cordially congratulate you speaking of putin this is the patriarch of the russian orthodox church on defender of the fatherland day i wish you good health peace of mind and abundant help from the lord in your high and responsible service to the people of russia He added, added, which explains the problem, right? This is a fratricidal war. I know how many people in Russia have friends and family in Ukraine. So to allow this and not say that it is an unjust war, unjustified war, is completely unacceptable. But why is this problem occurring? He noted that with the active participation and support of the president, quote, many important temple building, educational, and social projects of the Moscow, Moscow Patriarch are being implemented. And this is really the truth. It's been decades now that the Orthodox Church has been receiving benefits uh, benefits from Putin. right? And they refuse to take distance. And when you lose your economic freedom, you're going to lose your moral freedom to preach the gospel and the truth. And this has to be immediately, I think, The bishops' conference around the world have to contact the Russian Patriarchate and ask them to oppose this war and to ask the Russian soldiers to lay down their weapons and return home and condemn Putin and all the people supporting this war.
0: Yeah, you know, this has not gone unnoticed, right? I mean, uh, there's also something up at the pillar earlier today about uh, about exactly what you're talking about right now, about uh, offering the... um, offering prayers for the single space of Russia and Ukraine when clearly there's there're two different you know nationalities here and if you're if you're if you're of the belief that they're that they're one nation then why are you bombing its cities? I mean they're, they're, I mean this is the type of thing that you'd expect the patriarchate to to speak out against but you're right
1: I mean- I have personally spoken to prelates of the Russian Orthodox Church and warned them of their proximity, not only to the Putin administration, but to the corrupt Russian oligarchs who surround Putin, who are involved with the Russian Orthodox Church. And this is completely unacceptable and beneath their office and their job as shepherds of the people in Russia.
0: Father Marcel, this is uh, I don't want to get too far afield here because I want to talk more about about this in, in specific terms. But this reminds me of ongoing conversations I've had with friends here. Ever since um, Putin started cracking down on um, Islamist separatists in Chechnya and, and mm-hmm. some of the other places, is that a lot of people have been sort of trying to cast Vladimir Putin as a as a soldier for Christianity, right? As sort of like the savior of Western Christianity. And I kept trying to argue with them that it had nothing to do with that. And this is a guy who's co-opting um christianity for entirely secular uh, you know imperial ambitions and yes. and I, this is this is sort of the end
1: result of this right i mean it would be a, a, a an episode of hot air to talk about the intellectual bankruptcy of so many conservatives and the conservative movement in the united states who imagine that somehow putin will be the savior of humanity or of western civilization when his position is clearly to create chaos against the West, right? So this is mere propaganda. Unfortunately, as I tell these young conservatives, please shut down conservative talk radio, not you, but others, right? (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) the, The ocean of superfluous podcasting and ignorance, people like, you know, Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson, who are shrilling for Putin and his regime is completely unacceptable. And I wish people would form their minds, you know, through serious, uh, reading of history and thinking through the problem. And I think this is what's contaminating so many good people who just have no idea what's going on. Putin is not a Christian. I and mean, this is literally the definition, the antithesis of what it means to be Christian.
0: Right. And, uh, and this is not pursuing any sort of Christian goals, which is a reason why the patriarchate's um, compliance in this uh, complicity, maybe is a better, uh, a better word for this complicity in this is somewhat stunning and 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 quite a bit unnerving um are I there mean, where, are, i was gonna, i was just going to ask you father marcel are there dissenting opinions within the russian orthodox church or are those just being suppressed
1: i mean the 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 problem is not just this invasion of ukraine right where was the ox orthodox church the russian orthodox church when alexei navalny was being persecuted and now still imprisoned right defending the people who were protesting on the streets for freedom, democracy, and human rights. Where was the Orthodox Church? They're fully aware of the criminality of Putin and the oligarchs, I can tell you. Where are they in in all of this? Where are they with the protesters in St. Petersburg and Moscow that have been arrested in the past days protesting this unjust war? So if you're not willing to do that as... um, Sergei CHAPNIN WROTE, HE'S THE uh, EDITOR-IN-CHIEF OF PUBLIC ORTHODOXY, AND I'LL JUST QUOTE HIM, TODAY IT IS ABUNDANTLY CLEAR THAT Petra Kirill IS NOT READY TO DEFEND HIS FLOCK, NEITHER THE PEOPLE OF UKRAINE, NOR THE PEOPLE OF RUSSIA, AGAINST PUTIN'S AGGRESSIVE REGIME. SO WE KNOW WHAT IS, what is HAPPENING, BUT THIS IS COMPLETELY UNACCEPTABLE.
0: NOW, THERE'S BEEN better response from other orthodox churches obviously yes. the, the ukrainian orthodox church has obviously got a lot to say about this but but also other orthodox churches are are lining up here uh, it's unanimous
1: yeah. it's unanimous the patriarch of constantinople the ecumenical patriarch bartholomew condemned this so did the patriarch of romania daniel and even the metropolitan of the ukrainian church that is still tied to the moscow patriarch condemned this right as an unjust aggression The deafening silence is really the Russian Orthodox Church, which is significantly uh, silent, but it's the most important one because Putin's stronghold largely on the Russian population depends on the fact that the Russian Orthodox hierarchy continues to appear with Putin in all sorts of public acts and giving this veneer of Christianity over this autocratic regime.
0: One has to wonder how long that's going to last, though. I mean, there's there's all sorts of indications that the propaganda war isn't going very well. You've got, you know, and I, I know it's a different sphere, but you've got Russian celebrities with millions of followers on social media that are coming out against this war. You've just got the fact that soldiers who are in Ukraine who were told that they were either going there for training exercises or B, to liberate ukrainians are now having to crush them under the, the tanks there was a, a speech at the un general assembly today by un's uh ambassador or un's ambassador there uh reading the text of a of a uh, of a exchange between a russian soldier and his mother right before he was killed so yes. um I, which was very powerful uh, a very powerful moment but i mean all of these things are going to back up on Putin and they're going to end up backing up on the, on the Russian Orthodox patriarchy as well.
1: I I think it's important. And I also hear these, uh, ignorant conservative radio talk show hosts and others saying that the sanctions are useless and as if it were, you know, a completely (laughs) futile effort, but they fail to see that the sanctions are not intended immediately to stop Putin. Everybody's aware of that, but they are creating internal pressure in Russia THAT HOPEFULLY WILL BUILD INTO SOMETHING LIKE THE ORANGE REVOLUTION IN UKRAINE AND ESPECIALLY IF THE RUSSIAN ORTHODOX CHURCH COMES OUT PUBLICLY AGAINST THIS WAR BECAUSE THIS PROBLEM HAS TO BE SOLVED BY JUST COMPLETE INTERNAL dissent IN RUSSIA TO DEPOSE PUTIN uh, AND HIS, YOU KNOW, HIS CRONIES. SO THE SANCTIONS ARE VERY IMPORTANT. THE, the, the RUSSIAN RUBLE TUMBLED 30% FROM YESTERDAY TO TODAY AND THIS IS INCREASING the pressure on banks and the pressure on the population that Putin must go. Besides that, hopefully there's covert efforts to have generals who see the problem, Putin threatening and putting his nuclear forces on high alert, that they at some point have to take action and take control over the nuclear arsenal and just remove Putin. We're hoping that is also taking place covertly.
0: Well, of course, because, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin made explicit reference to his nuclear arsenal in warning the West to stay out of this. Now, I don't think that even Vladimir Putin would think of using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine against fellow Slavs. I mean, I think that um, that's a uh, it's just unthinkable, but but just the fact that he's bringing this up, father Marcel is is an indication of how far this thing has gone.
1: I mean, I think there's a distinction there, Ed, which you probably are making when you say tactical nuclear weapons, because there are strategic nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons. So when people think about a nuclear war, they're thinking, you know, strategic weapons delivered by an intercontinental ballistic missile or a bomber or something like that. One of those could obliterate Paris or London. But they forget that, that Putin has tactical nuclear weapons. Many more than we do. They have about 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons. We have about 200 and maybe 100 only in Europe. Right. Those were designed, some of them, as low-yield nuclear warheads that you can put on a conventional weapon, So you can, on a weapon. So you can fire a conventional warhead, or you can fire one with nuclear yield that is lower. And those are designed for a limited strike, so intended basically to devastate enemy targets in a specific area and not re-complete nuclear havoc, Right. SO THEY COULD POTENTIALLY, IF THE RESISTANCE CONTINUES AND THE LETHAL WEAPONS THAT ARE ON THEIR WAY TO UKRAINE, THREE-MILE MILITARY CONVOY DRIVING TOWARDS Kiev AS WE SPEAK, RIGHT, THIS COULD HAPPEN TONIGHT, Uh, PUTIN COULD LOSE PATIENCE AND FIRE OFF A NUCLEAR TACTICAL WEAPON JUST TO DESTROY, YOU KNOW, THE DEFENSES OF UKRAINE. AND THEN THE QUESTION COMES, not so much about total nuclear war, there will be no questions if that happens. So if you start firing strategic nuclear weapons, it'll be the end. But what happens if he does use a tactical, low yield nuclear weapon on Kiev, right? That has never been done in combat. And he crosses that line. What will the West do at that point,
0: right? And not just the West, what will the, what will the, the Russian oligarchs do? Because at that point, I mean, you're talking about generations of, of isolation at the very least, there's certainly going to be a military response to uh, to that type of um, to that type of and It might not be terribly apparent. I mean, one of the things that you look at, uh, Father Marcel, is the position of Soviet um, uh, boomer submarines and making sure that they don't get any closer to the United States, the UK, or anywhere else than they are at at the moment. Uh, I would almost guarantee you. Well, even Even during normal times, we're tracking those things as best as we can. But I would say that there's probably a heightened sense that this might be the time to really keep a close eye on those types of mobile uh, naval assets.
1: Yeah, I doubt that Putin will go for an all-out nuclear war at this point. But still, to cross the line on these tactical nuclear weapons of smaller yield that are completely forbidden, what will be the response? The other thing that the the European community and the U.S. have to watch out for is what's happening in Belarus, right? right? Belarus has basically, for all intensive purposes, ceased to be a sovereign state, not only because they are aiding the invasion of Ukraine, but they've now seemingly announced that they will use their own troops with Belarusian uniforms to invade Ukraine and Kiev through the north. But the bigger thing that maybe nobody was noticing yesterday because they were talking about peace talks today, which of course is just a ruse by Putin and propaganda. He is creating his empire from Russia to Belarus and he needs the corridor through Ukraine. Yesterday there was a referendum because Belarus is neutral regarding nuclear weapons in their constitution until yesterday. They ran a referendum in which that was changed. So that means Belarus can now accept nuclear weapons and the second thing that was in that vote was that Lukashenko could stay as president, the same move that Putin made in Russia, till 2035. So now the question comes, what if, well, Putin will use that as leverage, that he could give nuclear weapons to Belarus because they now could become a nuclear power, and Lukashenko has already said he might request nuclear weapons. So now you put nuclear weapons at the frontier, at the border with four NATO countries who are not nuclear powers. So he is expanding the pieces on the chessboard. He is not looking to retreat at all, and this is extremely dangerous. I mean, this referendum that Lukashenko ran was clearly part of the strategy of Putin all along.
0: Right. All right. So let's get back to the churches. Now we've, we've talked about the uh, we've talked about the Russian Orthodox Church. We've talked about the other Orthodox churches. Uh, you know, Pope Francis. Um, actually did something fairly unprecedented i don't want to say entirely unprecedented because i'm not sure about that but certainly something unusual in directly going to uh, an ambassador to talk about um this invasion this was a a couple of days ago um yeah and um i mean the vatican's always going to be opposed to any sort of military action and that's not a big surprise and it's, it's fully consistent of course with with christian teaching um what is the role that you've seen them playing? What is the role that the American bishops should be playing in this in this crisis?
1: So I'm going to say that the Vatican is not opposed to all wars. It's clearly the teaching of the church that there are wars that are yes, just. True. Yes, Self-defense wars. And clearly <clears throat> yes. that was the case in Croatia in the 90s. It would be the case here, I would say. Um, and we also know that Pope Francis spoke uh, via telephone with uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine. So clearly we know where where they stand where the the whole world stands right there's been protests in berlin against the war a hundred thousand people in czech republic hong kong all over the world so they are definitely preoccupied about the problem and they have great intelligence because they have priests and others on the ground right this is almost during the cold war one of the best informations of intelligence was the catholic church in poland right um I definitely think all Episcopal conferences around the world should be calling, especially tonight, because the big attack on Kiev could happen tonight or tomorrow, depending how long it takes for those forces to get there to surround Kiev, uh, for prayer and fasting and to say masses immediately, but also to take up collections, not the second collection that they take up in the Catholic Church (laughs) with just a few hundred dollars. I already did that myself. No, no, real collections and send them to to Ukraine for the refugees, and um, I think Caritas Ukraine, Caritas International Ukraine, is a good way to send money for those who are interested, either to the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, who are helping the refugees, or directly to Ukraine. I think the hierarchy must immediately and publicly call upon the Russian Orthodox hierarchy to condemn this attack. Right, as I said, the Patriarch of uh constantinople has called on this as as have every every other you know serious figure in the orthodox church they need to do so publicly they must condemn this attack and if the bishops around the world are not willing to lead on this i mean that is really just a neglect of duty i think the west should open up monasteries and convents which are fairly empty unfortunately but i know those monasteries to receive refugees because we are presuming two to three million people will be fleeing Ukraine. And it is not something that Poland can shoulder on its own, though though they've been doing a heroic job. They should open up those monasteries and put these religious to work to help. There's a lot of talk about social justice. I'd like to see it in action once in a lifetime.
0: It's a great point. Um, Poland's been doing a a heroic job. Romania and Hungary as well. Uh, Moldova, Moldova, which has... Uh, which is clearly would be the next target if Ukraine falls. Um, I mean, the R- Russians have had their eyes on uh, Moldova for well ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, mm-hmm. So that's another piece that they want to put in place. But they are they have stood up and said that uh, they're opposed to this and they're taking in refugees. And so there's a lot of heroism that's going on out there. I think it, I think you're right that it's it's time to to force the uh, the the Russian Orthodox Church. To choose between its Christian duty and its its secular ambitions here, and I'm surprised that they haven't seen that as of yet. Of course, and again, just to circle back around, this is a, a milieu which you're very familiar. You 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 were ordained in that milieu. You've worked in that milieu. Um, what do you think? Just if you could speculate, what do you think the internal discussions? In the russian orthodox church are looking at uh, like right now is there is there also going to be a sort of a, uh, a a wave of dissent that's going to rise up against against the patriarch
1: there's a pretty strong control of patriarchy over almost everybody in the russian Patriarchate. there are some good people i believe in the russian Patriarchate. Uh, such as Metropolitan Hilarion Alfeyev, who has a lot of friends in the West. I know him personally and have done things and worked with him when I was running aid to the church in Russia to help and cooperate after the fall of communism. Uh, It's going to be up to them whether they're going to dissent or whether particular uh, individual priests are going to start voicing their opposition to what is taking place. I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church is also very upset that the Ukrainian part of the Ukrainian Church, uh, Orthodox Church, broke away from their jurisdiction in um, uh, in Ukraine, and they're now autocephalous, recognized by the Patriarch of Constantinople. But this has become a political problem too. Not only Lavrov, but also other politicians in Moscow talk about. THIS IDEA, PUTIN TALKED ABOUT IT AS WELL, THAT THE UKRAINIAN AUTHORITIES HAVE CYNICALLY TURNED THE TRAGEDY OF THE CHURCH SPLIT INTO AN INSTRUMENT OF STATE POLICY. SO THEY'RE INVOLVING THE RELIGIOUS ASPECT AS PART OF ONE OF THE REASONS FOR THEIR DOMINATION, RIGHT? THAT THEY MUST CORRECT THE SIN AGAINST THE ORTHODOX CHURCH, RIGHT? BUT IT GIVES AMPLE JUSTIFICATION TO THE INDEPENDENCE OF THE RUSSIAN ORTHODOX, uh, THE UKRAINIAN CHURCH IN UKRAINE, because their complaint was that the Russian Orthodox Church was becoming an instrument of the state and we see it now
0: right right and this is the reason why um, just in general I, I you know talk about in terms of Italian history too and mm-hmm. and and uh, you know the the um, the resurgimento and and all of that is, is it's best when Christian churches aren't actually um, uh, partners uh, or 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 a part of the state itself when they stand apart and and hold all everyone accountable including those in power
1: i mean i would say that obviously since the common good is not in contradiction with the notion of a christian society right it was in fact uh the catholic church that for centuries built basically what was the west so there's no intrinsic contradiction that the government protect that culture and that civilization, right? Right. The problem becomes when you have corrupt leaders like Vladimir Putin, who has clearly without question, they know all of this, the corruption, the stealing of the money of all these oligarchs, the murder of people, even in Moscow, um, that you're collaborating or tacitly staying quiet in order to continue that collaboration is, is just completely unacceptable. Well, it's... It's they know at it. the
0: least, right? It's at the least. It. Yeah.
1: I've told them directly to their face, and they know what is happening, but they're going to have to make a choice whether they're serving Christ or they're serving, you know, financial and other political interests, right? Indeed. Our Lord said, of what good is it to win the world and lose your soul? So I definitely think all. All hierarchies around the world should be on this problem publicly calling the Russian Orthodox Church to do something about that and materially and spiritually immediately cooperating uh, with their Ukrainians who are suffering at this hour.
0: Well, Father Marcel, I think we're going to ha- leave it at that. But uh, before we go, uh, are there any links that you'd like to share with us for or, or just references at, uh, where people can go to find out more about what you're doing, find out more about this conflict? I- I'll just offer up Pillar Catholic com has a, a piece up on um, Patriarch uh, Kirill. Um, uh, I think it's up today, actually. Uh, so that gives a little bit more background on what uh, Father Marcel Gronizo is saying. But uh, where can people go to find out more about you and the work that you're doing?
1: Well, I think I, I sincerely think the most important thing is to send funds right now to, you know, the Ukrainian Caritas and other places that are aiding in this problem. Uh, we can also talk about the link if people want to directly fund the Ukrainian army. And I think that would be no problem as far as I'm concerned. And, um, and I will publish an article soon about this problem with the Russian Orthodox Church. I think we don't know how far this goes, but we could be at the precipice of something so grave that we've never conceived of the possibilities here, right? And if Putin is mentally unstable, as it seems to me, he seems much, much less rational and a lot of other observers would say the same. We, we don't know how far this could go, if he's gonna use a tactical nuclear weapon or if he's gonna cross into a NATO country or what else is going to happen. Um, I think it's a good lesson. You should never put unstable people in charge of nuclear weapons in Russia or in this country. As I said, as I said in, the, in recent years, it's not just that side, right? Right. If you're going to vote, that should be a minimum. If that person is not stable emotionally or psychologically, you cannot make them president because they will have access to nuclear weapons and we can find ourselves in these situations.
0: Father Marcel Guarnizo, well put. Thank you so much for being with us. We will come back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me now to extend our discussion about Ukraine, Russia, and the war is one of my great friends, King Banyan of the Northern Alliance Radio Network. Uh, He's still on the air in Minneapolis uh, doing his business show and uh, talking about Ukraine. I was just on the show, in fact, on Saturday, and we ended up doing an hour's worth of discussion, King, and it was, man, I had a great time.
2: So did I, Ed. Thank you so much for joining me then and it's glad to glad to come back and return the favor to you to you. Um yeah, it was a great it was a great hour and uh, in fact if nobody heard it, if you haven't heard it, uh we're probably gonna replay it as a special hour in a week or two. Oh
0: wow, great. Well that yeah. I'm 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 flattered. That's great. Um I'm hoping that events will have changed uh significantly since then. Um over the last couple of days, I think what's significant is that they haven't changed significantly. Russia still hasn't really seized uh, much. I think they're close in Kharkiv, uh, but uh, but they're 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 bogged down here a bit, and they're going to have to bring in heavier formations in order to in order to get over this impasse. And uh, this is a debacle if you're on the Russian side.
2: Yeah, it seems to me if you uh, Russia badly underestimated not only the skills of the Ukrainian army, but sort of the willingness of the Ukrainians to resist, um, to not just muck their hand right away for Zelensky not to sue for peace right away. So as I understand it, at, this, at the time we're recording this, uh, we are still waiting for perhaps uh, uh, any further reports of results from uh, from a peace talks that were held at the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, uh, based on what I know, the the results were inconclusive, but I haven't really read any reports of detail. So all we know is that the fighting is continuing in this moment.
0: Well, I don't know that there's much that you can, that they're going to be able to do, right? I mean, the Ukrainian position is you guys need to leave. And the Russian position is, no, you guys need to leave. So I'm not sure I'm not sure where you go with talks along those lines but I think what's clear is that Russia really needs to talk its way out of this if if just from a just from a military point of view they're chewing up possibly thousands of troops and that is I mean this is against a a, a republic that didn't really field a large army in the first place I mean certainly they had an army Um, and their army is performing spectacularly well considering but this is this has the uh, at least it has the potential here to strip away the pretense of superpower status that putin's been building up as a sort of a a calling card over the last 20 years I, i mean this is this is a debacle
2: yeah it is for them i i mean again i'm an economist i'm not a military expert in any way shape or form uh but but largely you had a reputation and that uh, the russian uh, forces were highly experienced they developed all these skills uh in syria in um in georgia in in the invasion of crimea uh within ukraine back eight years ago you had you had all of this all of this knowledge and almost a mythical status to the russian army and You know, no matter what happens from here, you have to say that's actually taken a pretty significant dent Um, and the and people who are for what I do, I try to watch prediction markets to see what's happening and and. As opposed to thinking that this would be over in a matter of days, you can now you now get people only saying there's about a 67% chance in prediction markets that Kiev will be in Russian hands by April 1st, not just March 1st, which is what we initially thought, but but even 31 days later, there's at least a, a reasonable chance that uh, that you that Russia will never even get to control Kiev even though that was their principal target from the very first moment that they started.
0: Yeah, this is um, – now you're you're seeing Belarus saying that they're going to send their army into the field, and that's going to make things a, a, a little trickier here too. I, I was talking with uh, uh, Father Marcel Guarnizo and, uh, about really a, a different direction on this. He was talking more about the uh, – Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and and some of those issues around there. But he did mention the fact that Belarus has um, changed its constitution. I hadn't actually caught up to this, but apparently there was a referendum in Belarus to change the constitution to allow for the deployment of nuclear weapons in their country, and uh, also, not coincidentally, to allow Lukashenko to keep running for president, because... <laughs> That was probably not a big surprise. But the nuclear weapons thing is, especially in relation to what Vladimir Putin's been saying about nuclear weapons over the last couple of days.
2: Yeah, the, 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 the uh, Belarusian referendum, which I think passed with like 67 percent of the vote, was, uh, among other things, a vote to allow Lukashenko basically to put in term limits, but to exempt Lukashenko from them. Uh, So there'll be term limits after he leaves office, whenever he chooses to do that. Uh, That's awesome. But it also allows Russian troops to be permanently based in Belarus, which uh, has to be deeply concerning and and probably was all part of a broad strategy to build a strategic buffer, Belarus and Ukraine together as a buffer against NATO, as as what really appears to be Putin's main plan, which is what's so surprising to you and me, Ed, is, is that that we talked for months as if they would be trying to annex uh, the two republics. Maybe they would try to grab all of Donbass, but in fact, their, their aim, Russia's and Putin's aims have been far broader. It surprises everybody to think that they may wish to go all the way to NATO's border, not just in Belarus, but uh, to position, because now they can position, think of it missiles, right on the border with Poland uh, and, uh, and uh, from Belarus. And now they if they had been able to take all of Ukraine, they might have been able to do the same thing to threaten Hungary, Romania, Slovakia and other countries that border border on Ukraine.
0: Well, this is part of what Putin was demanding, right, was that we that we retreat from all those places that he wants to go back to pre 2017 NATO positions where uh, and I think actually the, the, the Baltic states were pre 2017 anyway. But, you know, Hungary, Romania. Those were later additions and he wants to go back to having sort of those non, at least having those states be non aligned. I, I, what's ironic about that, of course, King, is that NATO has never been more united <laughs> and pro-NATO sentiment now in Europe has, pro-EU sentiment has never been stronger. You've got Orban and Hungary uh, uh, calling for sanctions. You've got Germany uh, backing swift sanctions now you've got finland uh sending uh sending weapons to ukraine that just happened today and um and both sweden and finland are now conferring with nato and look like they might end up joining which is something that they haven't done in 50 years
2: right uh right and and think about this uh just in the last uh two hours reported that zelensky the President Zelensky of Ukraine has sent his application, signed his application for EU membership, uh, and um, and to be uh, and calls for the EU to immediately approve it. Which they uh, they you know uh, to, and to think that uh, the German uh, leader of the European Commission, Ursula von, von der Leyen, uh, says that Ukraine is one of us and we want them in. That wasn't true last week. No, <laughs> that was. I mean, this is all extraordinarily different and you just kind of have to wonder how did these things change and I, it is interesting to me ed that, that it strikes me that some of the things that europe is doing we'll get to and maybe maybe we, we we'll talk about the economic impacts in a moment these are things which the eu is doing which is not clearly in their economic best interest that these are political decisions and in some ways emotional decisions being made by europe who I've argued all along is the is who has to take the lead in these negotiations, uh, has to take the lead in, in in you know in NATO. That as much as we think President Biden is the person who's who's running the show in NATO, it's really not, because it's Europe who's on the line here. And to watch the EU respond as it has has been really quite stunning to most of us who thought the eu was the weak link and and even to putin who thought that he could use these tactics to drive a wedge into into europe well he's done just the opposite it seems it seems like their their resolve has been uh, their resolve has been uh, uh strengthened by what's happened in the last five days
0: and uh again we're speaking with king banyan and uh king look i mean um uh... I, I do want to get to the economic impacts of these sanctions because i think that there's been some very interesting developments including from china uh yep. on on those on those points but you know a week and a half ago vladimir putin pretty much had what he wanted right i mean at least if he had stopped there if he he had the donbas he you know everybody in europe probably would have settled for a hard partition allowing him to control the donbas and and crimea he had the eu split he had NATO split. He had them dithering over sanctions. All of that changed in a heartbeat just as soon as the troops went across the border. And I think that that was perhaps the scales falling from the eyes of the West that had been building up there for 30 years. And you and I have talked about this before, is that we, a lot of people in the West bought into this idea of the, the end of history and that you know, Putin was just a guy who was you know pursuing legitimate state ends you know maybe through somewhat ruthless means but but still was was really just about protecting russia's interests. this is clearly this is clearly now a man who is imperialist militarily aggressive and is uh, and has no no sense whatsoever of international law he is rogue by any stretch of, by, by any definition he's rogue and i think that the eu and nato and the west has finally figured out that yes russia is an existential threat (laughs) and yes we better start taking it seriously
2: yeah i agree i i go back to the 30 you know so it's almost exactly 30 years ago that the soviet union fell uh which which uh putin has said is the is the number one like the the worst event to have happened in russia's history it was the fall of the soviet union at that time, I, I was working on projects, uh, projects related to the transition of the Central European economies and then quickly turned and looking at Eastern Europe. Um, and I said, I said at the time. We have this rather romantic view that this is all going to work out. You know, the the end of history, uh, a book written by Francis Fukuyama. Uh, but but we but even in even in places like Ukraine and Russia, we talked about something called market romanticism, that somehow when you collapse the Soviet Union, communism would just would just melt away and 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 free markets would form and so forth. We we're telling ourselves all kinds of stories about how the how the world would be would be changed. We've held on to those stories for a long long time long past their usefulness and we held on to them through 20 years of president Putin who has been very very clear. He announces his his contempt for all of that and then goes and does these things and we didn't react until now and I kind of really wonder what changed? Apparently, according to some reports, it was Zelensky saying to them in a video call, "This may be the last time you see me alive." And that, and that, for example, it said that at that moment, the four countries that were opposed to uh, imposing the swift sanctions, uh, which I know we'll talk about, uh, on them, uh, uh, those four countries, including Germany, Italy, uh, Hungary, and Cyprus, all said, "Yeah, you know what." We have to do it. Uh, and so to think that may have been just that one moment and, and and to have this guy, this television comedian become president and to rise to that moment is really striking. It's not something that that uh, it's something that people in political science seem to know very well. Guys like me in economics, it comes a little harder.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think people respond to leadership. Right. And I think yeah. that what we're seeing here, I think, King, to a certain extent is a, is a sort of a disillusionment of Western leadership because of all the dithering, all the incrementalism that's taken place. The fact that Putin seemed to be getting the best of everybody until very, very recently, coupled with some very bizarre thinking about Putin himself among fringes on the far right and the far left, mostly the far right. Um, and I think again, that some of that may have been internalized it, it, in, in the, the, um the analog that I'll give to you on this is what happened in the run-up to World War II. I don't want to make this, you know, Putin is Hitler, because right. it's a completely different, um, it, it's a completely different set of priorities. And Russian imperialism long predated um, Adolf Hitler and German imperialism, but, um, or at least Adolf Hitler's expression of German imperialism. But, um, but I do note that, the response to the West in the 1930s was really flabby. There was a lot of people in the West who thought that Adolf Hitler had the right idea, especially because it was, you know, perched up against, you know, Soviet uh, Bolshevism. And, uh, and you had a whole bunch of Nazi sympathizers right up until the time they rolled into Poland, right? At that point it sort of became, okay, I guess this is serious. And I, I would almost say that we're, seeing a replay of some of those same dynamics on both sides of this equation, you know, Putin's reliance on ethnic Russians as a pretext, the, the whole border issues down there, uh, some of which ended up getting di- uh, diffused uh, because of just much better intelligence, much better communication. We could point out all of these stupid pretext uh, attempts, but we're, we were seeing the same flabbiness in the West. And which is a reason why I think that, um, up until the moment that the troops cross over i think that it was just you had this sort of non you know unserious approach to russia for years from across the political spectrum and across the across the west
2: well we assumed that he was a rational actor and and we talked about we talked about this on saturday on my show and and I, i just i'll come back to it in this form we've seen two things happen to russia's status right one the veneer of, of near invincibility of the Russian armed forces has been severely dented, right, we, as we've talked about. But the other part that's been really dented in this, that, that I don't know how, how Putin puts this back together, is the idea that, that Ukrainians and Russians are ethnic brothers. That there is this Slavic brotherhood of people and Ukrainians and Russians would never really fight with each other because they are, they are of course, of the same people. Well, that has been severely dented here because if you, you know, particularly in the last 24 hours, it's one thing to attack military installations, but in Kharkiv in the last 24 hours, they've been blowing up apartments. Uh, They are, they are shelling, they're shelling civilian buildings. And any thought that there is any kind of ethnic brotherhood between Ukrainians and Russians, in the last 24 hours, particularly, they've decided to just kick that aside because they just want to win. And that is also uh, having scales fall, fall from the eyes of the West to, to see that, to say, oh, no, he, he clearly is willing to throw away all kinds of advantages just for territorial and material gain.
0: Well, let's talk about the material disadvantages now that are accruing to vladimir putin and the oligarchy in russia uh a wide swath of of sanctions have now been applied really in the last 48 hours right since the last time we talked on saturday morning right um right. you have um you have now some swift um restrictions put in place not as broad as we perhaps would like uh, there were carve outs for energy sales, which is exactly how he's funding that Putin is funding this. Um, uh, well, let's, let's start with that. Let's start with the SWIFT sanctions that did get put in place. And then I want to talk about China's response in terms of credit that um, might end up
2: amplifying
0: that uh, oddly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting that that I was watching today two, two major uh, indices that tell me what's going on in Russia right now. One was the exchange rate, which overnight uh, shot up to 110 rubles to the dollar. So a ruble at one time, back when I was working on Ukrainian issues in the early 1990s, a ruble traded for about a dollar. And so now we're talking about a ruble trading for a, less than a penny. Right. Um, and it was about three cents not terribly long ago, uh, uh, two cents even last fall, and now it's fallen by more than half within about a week. Uh, that's a big that's a big dent in the um, in the economy. It'll make it very hard for Russia to pay for imported goods to the extent that anyone's willing to sell them imported goods. They're going to be very very expensive to to uh, Russian uh, Russian importers on uh, going forward. The other number I've been watching over the last uh, the last uh, day or two has been uh, uh, credit default swaps on Russian sovereign debt, okay? You buy a credit default swap in order to determine, uh, in order to insure yourself against the possibility that, that that piece of debt will default, that the Russian government in this case will not pay off the debt. That was run that cost you a, right now about four times what it cost you a week ago to ensure your debt against default. Yeah, what does okay? that tell you? <laughs> and I, a lot of that really happened after the Chinese announcement, as well as the SWIFT announcement. And so it's like all of a sudden the people that they thought were going to work with them. I think Russia may have misunderstood how China thinks about territorial integrity. Of course, they. They have serious issues regarding territorial integrity vis-a-vis Taiwan, uh, vis-a-vis Xinjiang, uh, and so forth. So they are very, very sensitive to that. And they don't want to do anything that might damage their case in international relations with other countries. So they've tried to play it both ways with Russia. And it's not clear to me that that they actually that Xi actually really understands what he needs to do because he can't really get a read on on Putin any more than you and I can. Um, I don't think I, I don't think he's got the quite the stable partner in this relationship between Russia and China that maybe he thought he had last week.
0: Right. Well, let's go over what China did say. Uh, sure. and, and actually, China didn't say this. Right. This is this is being reported very quietly apparently the bank of china at least in singapore where these transactions take place is refusing to grant lines of credit for russian oil shipments and natural gas shipments um that's the that's the bank of china itself at least its singapore division singapore let's remember is its own entity it's not part of china um as well as a couple of the financial houses that are state-owned by China other than Bank of China all are all of these are at least for the moment refusing uh lines of credit for Russian oil sales and the the reason why this is important King and you can explain this at more length is that because of the collapse of the ruble and because they don't have a lot of access to other uh to hard currency now thanks to some of the other sanctions that have been put in place we'll talk about those in a moment um they need credit in order to move the energy, uh, in order to get the money in so that they can do more of this work. If they can't get lines of credit, I mean, that their, their, their oil and natural gas sales are just simply going to stall out. And that is almost sort of like completing the loop here. I don't know anybody else other than China, by the way, who can actually supply them the credit to do that.
2: Well, who's going to want to do it, right? What's interesting is I do think China has got a role, got something to say about wanting to get the oil itself. So they may be, they may be blocking the use of credits from China to let Russia sell oil to other countries or to other things. Right. Other countries, but they may that may just be a ploy to try to get the oil sold to them, perhaps at a preferential price. But here's the here's the what I think is the real issue here today, Monday. Um, we have seen. Uh, the United States come out with another set of sanctions against the Russian Central Bank. Remember, part of Putin's strategy after 2014, when we threatened to cut him off from SWIFT, was to build up a huge reserve of foreign currency uh, reserves in other countries and say, well, we'll pay you out of an account over here. We'll pay you out of an account over there. Well, what the U.S. did today was to say Russian central bank may not transfer any asset held in a U.S. bank to any place else. Those are frozen in place. And it's kind of hard for me to believe that, that Putin would have believed we wouldn't do that. But it appears that that's got, that's got a fair amount of, that's got, there's a fair amount of money actually inside U.S. banks that was pre-positioned for paying for goods and services. So. The fact that the ruble declined so much inc- indicates to me that he, that Putin does not have the wherewithal to sell dollars into the marketplace to strengthen the ruble. He instead has to double the interest rate between the you know, interest rates charged on short-term loans for for banks. We know that their ATMs are are running out of dollars, running out of euro, uh, and and uh, it's really creating quite an issue for for putin in terms of the way an average citizen thinks about it is can i go to a bank and withdraw foreign currency if i want it and increasingly the answer to that is no in russia
0: well and you're already seeing lines at atms i mean you've got if that's not a bank run it's the beginnings of one right and that's that's a crisis all on its own too is that you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are trying to pull value out of the accounts at the rubles Lowest point, you know, well at least potentially the lowest point. Maybe it's not. Maybe it will go lower. um You're gonna have people emptying out their bank accounts when their buying power is at its worst because they're afraid of what's going to come next, and they're afraid that the banks are just simply going to collapse. Uh, now, this is not the first time this has happened. It happened at the end of the Soviet Union. It happened actually in 1998 as well.
2: Right. That's exactly right. And because at that time, of course, Russia defaulted on its debt. And that's kind of the question that comes next is is why I was tracking the seed, the, the credit default swaps is because the next thing that's likely to happen is, is all those international investors in Russian debt, and there are many of them, uh, are likely to be told that because of the currency crisis, we cannot at this particular moment meet our payments of interest on that debt, which then throws it into default, um, so the implied rate on those numbers now is a seven percent chance of default on that debt sometime in the next five years. Seven percent's pretty big. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of in the junk bond status uh, at this particular moment, and 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 probably akin to, say, what Zimbabwean bonds get. I'm not sure what their CDS rates are. I don't even know if anyone buys a CDS on, <laughs> on Zimbabwean bonds. But but uh, they, they, So I just picked that out of thin air. But, um, but I will say it's a pretty significant peak in the likelihood of default on those bonds. And it's a sign of the stress that their financial system is undergoing right now.
0: Let me ask you this I and mean, we we've got a few minutes left. Let me ask you this. Are you surprised at the speed at which the EU has well first off that the EU is really taking the lead on this. The, the US administration seems to be um following more than it's leading here. But are you surprised at the at the speed in which this is happening? Are you surprised at the speed in which the uh, these seem to be already having an impact in Russia?
2: Well, I think I think what happened was uh, Russia believed in its own invincibility. I think it thought it had a decapitation strategy that would, you know, they started on a Thursday. They probably figured by Sunday they'd they'd be in Kiev and be in, and install a new a new leadership uh, in the Ukrainian government. Zelensky would have either fled or been captured, and maybe worse. Um, and that hasn't happened. Um, so i think some of this is a surprise to them it am i surprised by what by what europe did yes i am and i think i but more to the point i think putin is the one who's surprised by what by what happened and that's why we're seeing some of these uh ramifications that we're seeing now i don't think we were inclined to impose the strategies against them because we because we believed along with putin that a decapitation strategy would actually work then it didn't work They I'm, I won't say it's reluctantly, but perhaps they thought, wow, this might actually have more impact than we thought it was going to have. So let's try it and see what happens. But if you really thought Zelensky and Ukraine would fall within three days, why would you even talk about imposing swift sanctions? Okay. Just to have to undo the damage three, you know, 72 to 96 hours later. Right. It is only as long as this lasts that may, you know, the longer this lasts, the more willing. Europe and the U.S. and and Canada and now even China are willing to sort of say, "Hey, this is really a bad thing, and you need to stop."
0: One last thing, and because we got to talk about, we got to talk Turkey. Oh yeah, <laughs> we got to talk oh, Turkey. Yeah. So yeah. so let's let's spend at least a couple of minutes talking Turkey here. Um, Turkey just announced, just maybe about an hour before we started, less than an hour before we started doing this, that they were going to block military ships from the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. Now this matters (laughs) to the russian navy and um and and this is a huge problem for the russian navy the russian military and it is i think yet another signal that even that the scales are falling even from erdogan's eyes and erdogan was kissing up to putin pretty heavily over the last few years
2: he has, and and anyone that's heard us talk before, particularly when we've talked about our media, knows I have a pretty a pretty negative opinion of President Erdogan. Um, so uh, take this with a grain of salt. But I do think Erdogan recognizes that NATO uh, is firmly against uh, Russia. It still has aspirations. It still has. It still is part of NATO. It still has desires to be in the EU and it's a love-hate thing between uh, uh uh between turkey and russia uh they were not at all happy with russia's interference in the war between armenia and azerbaijan uh a year ago november uh where russia kind of intervened to say hey we need to we need to freeze this conflict and russia has imposed troops in uh karabakh between armenians and Azeris. they're there you mean i mean it's been a love hate thing it's been more hate than love over the last year or so so i mean i'm not surprised by this the real question is if a russian military vessel approaches the dardanelles will turkey actually block it and if necessary uh fire upon it I, i i have real problem believing that yeah uh i do but um but um I don't put anything by by President Erdogan. I I think it's very possible that he's decided right at the moment the strong horse may be Europe and not and not Putin.
0: Well, I think the last couple of days has sort of made that pretty clear. And uh, yes, I mean I, I like you. I have very little uh, I have very little uh, uh love for the current uh administration of Turkey Erdogan is a is is a uh, problem child, to to put it mildly, but <laughs> very mildly. To put it very mildly, but you know you have to take a look at his actions over the last few days. All of a sudden, he's seeking a rapprochement with um, Israel after what a couple of years of yep. antagonism. He's now blocking the Dardanelles. He's uh, calling on uh, he's calling Putin's invasion of Ukraine a a, a crime and that uh, you in standing by Ukraine as a sovereign nation. I think this is a guy who just got a, a big, huge whiff of the Cold War and decided that he was perhaps on the wrong side of it. So, like you, I think yeah. that that's probably what's going on.
2: Yeah, I was reading. I was reading a story, and I'm still. I haven't followed up on it, but I read a story about the fact that the Ukrainian army is using drones in their work and actually lethal drones. And I think, where did they come from? Well, there are two countries that sell lethal drones uh, to third countries, and one of them is Turkey. And I've been trying to research whether or not these are Turkish drones. I think they are, but I don't hold me to that. By the way, the other one, Israel. Right. right.
0: So. And Israel's t- trying to f- tread very carefully in this. I, I talked to Dr. M- Dr. Michael Oren when I was guest hosting for Hugh last week, and they're trying to tread very carefully on this issue uh, because there are so many points of engagement between Israel and Russia in Syria that they don't want to provoke something. But right. even Israel starting to toughen up. I, I don't want to say even Israel because Israel is – trying to do the right thing while protecting themselves as they should but uh, even they're getting a little bit more bold about calling out russia on this and of course there's uh, a lot of people in israel have relatives and and ancestry in ukraine too so there's right. there's that part of it as well well king Banyan, um remind people where they can find you and they can find your fine radio show uh, even if you do invite some bald ne'er-do-well on
2: occasionally to talk on it <laughs> well we are a business and economics program the king Bangian show on twin cities we're we're live 9 to 11 a.m on on saturdays from minneapolis so that's central time 10 to, Ten in the east, seven in the west, and uh, we'd be we'd be delighted. You can listen to us over, uh, live. Uh, we live stream the show, so you are able to hear us from any place you want. I remember when, when my mom was still alive, that we would actually have her listening all the way from South Carolina. So if you want to listen online, please do. All right, King Banyan. You can also find him at Banyan Show at B A N A I A N S H
0: O W, Banyan Show, um, on Twitter. And that way you can keep up with everything that's going on on the King Banyan show. I'm Ed Morrissey, the Ed Morrissey Show, so stay tuned for more. This is Ed Morrissey of hotair.com for Town Hall. Joe Biden has approached the crisis in Ukraine, just as he has every acute issue his administration has faced, reactively, leading, as they say, from behind. From the supply chain crisis to record inflation, the collapse in Afghanistan and Biden's abandonment of thousands of Americans, right up to Vladimir Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine and energy policy, Biden has barely acted tactically, let alone strategically. Even as the U.S. ramps up the sanctions, Biden trails other Western leaders. Biden only agreed to limited SWIFT sanctions when Germany and Eastern Europe got out ahead of him. Switzerland, of all places, threatened asset seizures before the U.S. finally targeted Russia's central bank and sovereign funds. Biden had an opportunity to keep Putin at bay by aggressively producing oil and natural gas through efforts like the Keystone Pipeline to keep prices low and Russian profits minimal. Even in this crisis, Biden wants to avoid sanctions on Russian energy sales to keep even higher gas prices from further undermining his domestic support. Leading from behind is not leading at all. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining us, as always on Tuesdays, the Prince of Twitter, the Regent of
3: Red State, Andrew Malcolm. (laughs) at ah welcome on my twitter <laughs> that always gives me a tick uh tickle i must say uh, i
0: kind of like that, the region of red state that works doesn't it
3: yeah it works everything works with you yeah thank you <laughs> well, the prince of twitter actually there are people that go oh there's the prince of twitter so you know it's your loyal followers if Learned the lesson.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. Now, Andrew, you should have had plenty of opportunity to get recognized as such, because you were at CPAC this year. I didn't get a chance to yeah. go, but you were there. Uh, yeah. Tell yeah, us a little bit about CPAC.
3: Well, it was very hot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was up in the upper 80s. Um, yeah, uh drove down and um, uh, met a whole bunch of... Uh, My well, they're not new anymore, but uh, colleagues at Red State, and it was just delightful boy that's a good crowd. And uh, uh, so we had a a little get together for the kickoff for CPAC and that was, that was grand fun. Um, And uh, I went, I went to hear some of the speakers I was I was writing my column, uh, which I know we can talk about later but Ukraine certainly was a major theme among speakers, uh, and um, uh, Rick Grinnell uh, talking about uh, major reforms needed at the State Department. He, he was it was a very kind of bureaucratic speech, you know, how we need to reform these parts. And I know he worked at the State Department, but uh, he wanted to change that. Rick Scott. Went on at length about his new eleven-point program, Rescue America, which I guess is the website. Um, and um, he was good. He wasn't. He wasn't smooth. And, uh, so I'm. I'm not. I, obviously, he's got plans for 2024. I think that's kind of a given. Sure. Watching. Watching how he behaves and what he's doing. And you know, as the head of that. Senate uh, Senatorial Campaign Committee. He's uh, he's making a lot of, of contacts with rich people. And um, uh, Mitch uh, McConnell wanted the Republican Caucus to have a plan for 2022. And uh, Rick said, well, I'm going to have my own plan for 2022. So it's kind of, uh, I think we're gonna hear a lot more about Rick Scott. Well, I think uh, so,
0: too. But I mean, honestly, I'm not sure that anybody in the Senate is really going to compete. I think this between Trump and um, and Ron I'm DeSantis and I don't Doug know, there might be a there. governor,
3: maybe Doug, Doug Ducey. Was Doug Ducey there at all? I didn't see him. Um, mm. uh, Christy Nome was there. And as far as I'm concerned, she gave the best. I didn't hear all the speeches, but of the speeches I heard. Uh, governor Nome gave the, the best conservative most consistently conservative speech. Um, talking about uh, there was 49 states had mandates and one didn't and that's hers because she has cut co- trust and confidence in Americans to make the, the best decisions for themselves. Um, and she was well received. Um, and uh, so I, I hope we hear more from her. I think so. Is she showing up? No, I mean, that's this, interesting yeah. because,
0: I mean, this is a woman who's a fairly young woman, very energetic, kind of got crossways with the base on um, taking a pass on that first um, attempt on the transgender yeah. a- athletics. Uh, but but she she came around on the second pass, right? So she kind of got back in yeah. solid with the base you're saying that she was the most energetic there. Was she how was she well received or were, were there? a oh, lot? Yeah, of yeah, she
3: was very well received. Lots of applause for her conservative points about leaving it to Americans to make the best decisions for themselves. Um, and she was she was impressive. I did not see Nikki Haley, which surprised me um, because I'm getting one or two emails a day from her uh, pack uh seeking money to support uh republican candidates but obviously to get her name out there as supporting republican candidates um uh governor DeSantis was very well received i would say it was a rousing reception um and um uh and he played played well to it uh marco rubio was there and um you know, he like, like Christy Nome. he makes, uh, what's the word? He's, he's not angry, which I find refreshing. Uh, he makes, and, and neither was, was Governor Noem. Uh He makes solid conservative points. Uh, I remember I talked with him a little while ago and, and um, he was uh, uh, talking about, I guess, a class he teaches at a community college in Florida and the students were asking him, uh, why, why is the government trying to squash Uber? Um, and um, um, what's the other drive ride one?
0: Oh, uh, Lyft, Uber and Lyft.
3: Yeah, why, why is the government trying to squash Uber and Lyft? And he, and he pointed out uh, uh, the opportunity for free enterprise. They were saying, well, they're cheaper than taxis. And he says, yeah. And they said, well, gee, that's not fair. And, <laughs> Ru- and Rubio says, he looked at them and he said, welcome to the conservative movement. Um, uh, so, so he's very personable. You know, I mean, he's a little league coach and, and uh, makes, I think, very, very strong, reasonable um, conservative points. He may not be angry enough. Um, I'm. I think there's a lot of Americans that are have drifted away from the anger days, and uh, there's still a lot of people that support Trump. Uh, there's no realistic alternative at the moment, um, but there's also a very strong feeling. Of watching on, among my many uh, Twitter followers, uh, the, the discussion of. Yeah, boy, he did a lot of good things, but he's so angry. I'd I'd like to have somebody new. And uh, so we'll see how that how that develops. Uh, Trump, obviously, I'm getting several messages a day from him and his sons that uh, I need to support America and I can be on the on the Insider Club and all of that if I only give a thousand (laughs) dollars. So that's that's uh, how you
0: get to be an ambassador, though
3: yeah that's right exactly right uh so he announced uh what was it is in march was it the is the 13th a saturday uh
0: yes i believe that's right yeah
3: yeah so no it's the 12th uh yeah so i think there's a it's you have to check online but i'm pretty sure that trump announced his next rally for uh florence south carolina on uh, march 12th all right um So he's going to be doing, uh, I think, one or two a month. And then, of course, uh, he was the wind up speaker on Saturday night. And uh, the lines were forming not from CPAC, uh, what do you call it, Um, attendees, but people who wanted to see Trump. They were forming early in the afternoon for a 7 p.m. speech. And as you might imagine, but uh you know this time uh was a little strange there was not uh at least among the cpac people that i saw and interacted with there was not a lot of uh trump buzz they love him but um they 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 didn't seem all that excited or desperate to see him as i had expected to be well you and
0: I have been at CPACs before where, where Trump was speaking and there was always a ton of a uh, almost electricity in the hallways over yeah, yeah. over the trump speech right
3: I yeah I didn't uh I didn't pick that up this year but uh, I mean they love him uh, but and you know there wasn't a whole lot of media on it either uh, red state did a, a, a one or two pieces uh, but <clears throat> Um, I didn't see much uh, much anywhere else. And if anybody wants to catch what he said, it's archived at uh, c-span.org. Uh, a few minutes after all of those speeches, uh, C-SPAN puts them in the archive, and they're searchable and excerptable. And oh, I mean, it's just an amazing resource when you want to catch up on stuff.
0: Well, indeed, absolutely. Um... You know, you talk about there not being a lot of media attention to CPAC this year. I mean, I kind of noticed that, too. And, I, I mean, you were there, and you're part of Red State. Um, Town Hall was there, and there was some Town Hall coverage. PJ Media oh, yeah. was there. Um, but I didn't see a lot of mainstream media coverage, and part that may have been because of Ukraine. I mean, honestly, it's been more or less the the, the big story, the only story right now in the media. Yeah. So, I mean, it just um, – yeah, it might yeah. be it might be part of that because this is an election year normally you would get some coverage of CPAC.
3: yeah yeah you would um uh, well you know as i mentioned in the column putin is a wily son of a gun and uh, you notice <laughs> he uh, took over crimea when obama was president and then at the end of the obama term uh he stopped doing all this uh, annexing uh uh because of trump right plain and simple trump is unpredictable uh he's a bully like like uh, putin at times um and uh you know the media likes to portray trump uh, as as loving putin but um he put more and tougher sanctions on putin than um than obama had uh so uh, uh anyway so putin picks democratic presidents who are typically weaker on foreign policy weaker on national defense and he picks them to be uh when they when he makes his expansionist moves um and um it's, uh, it's sad because it makes us vulnerable, and it also invites expansionist moves by uh, China that is now rumbling more about taking over Taiwan and North Korea, which is now back, unlike the Trump years, back testing uh, ICBMs and a hypersonic missile that goes 10 times the speed of sound. Yep. That's, that's 4,000 miles an hour. You, you you don't shoot that old suckers down. So um, yeah, so it was a it was an interesting time. And obviously, Ukraine was is uh, the big story. The thing that strikes me about the media on Ukraine uh, is and we can talk some more about this if you want, but is sure. um, is the the coverage is kind of naive. You know, I mean, a, yeah, old, I mean, even, old, even from
0: some of the even from some of the old hands. I mean, I'm just I, yeah. I, as, as you're seeing yeah. this, I, I'm seeing a tweet from Richard Engel, who's yeah. you know a, a, a good a veteran veteran. He, yeah, good veteran, uh, you know, war correspondent, foreign affairs correspondent, did some great work in Afghanistan during the collapse there. And, you know, he's got a tweet up. And, you know, tweets are tweets. You know, it just, it's, you're the prince of Twitter. Tweet, because yeah. You know what tweets are? They're sticky notes. They're sticky That's notes, right. Yeah. Right. But <clears throat> so this was what he tweeted. And I'm just going to credit this to a brain fart from a guy who's smarter than this perhaps the biggest risk calculation moral dilemma of the war so far a massive russian convoy is about 30 miles from Kyiv. the united the u.s nato could likely destroy it but that would risk direct involvement against russia and risk everything does the west watch in silence as it rolls i mean i don't think that the west has been silent i also don't think that the it's a great idea for nato to go charging into ukraine and start firing at russian soldiers and starting world war three i mean there's uh, there, there are positions in between those two things. Yeah. And and I think NATO has been very careful to, to make sure that they don't cross that line even inadvertently to give Putin uh, a pretext for a wider conflict here, which might help him politically back home.
3: Yeah. Well, Putin may find a con- uh, pretext. Sure. Uh, um, but they seem, uh, the NATO countries seem to be somewhat preparing. Uh, They're jacking up their defense spending, which of course has a long lead time. Uh, But they they finally got the message that Putin uh, is is a bad guy. They've they've stopped um, Nord Stream two, which is almost done. Uh, They're building up troops in um, in Poland. Um, uh, Belarus is kind of a wild card uh it's become in effect another puppet state of moscow's um and um it's tough to stand by and see this on the other hand uh president eisenhower you know in 1956 the hungarian revolution right great pressure for him to to take us in there and we didn't and the small d democrats got crushed um uh, they eventually prevailed but it was a long time until the end of the cold war from 1956 and a lot of people got hurt uh the what we're hearing from the media coverage is that uh ukrainians seem to be putting up a pretty a pretty good fight um they're underdogs and they always will be underdogs and uh the Russians, um, you know, I don't know how long Putin's going to take this. I think the the peace talks, alleged peace talks are not really peace talks. It may give him more time to bring more troops in because I think he was, he's been surprised at the strength of of resistance. But, uh, I mean, there's no hope in my eyes of, of Ukraine winning. They could maybe stall it. They certainly can make Russia pay a bigger price than they thought they would. And they already have. I mean, I think yeah. everybody
0: figured by day three, they'd have Kiev, Kharkiv, and um, and maybe even Lvov in um, in Russian hands. And they don't have any of those. No, <laughs> they haven't no. taken any. Uh, I, I think they've got part of Kharkiv, and they're on the outskirts of Kiev, but they haven't really seized any major population centers. And it's been um, a nightmare. It's been bogging down all over the place and I, you know, I've got some, I've got a couple of things that are going to be in the same podcast coming up in this podcast from King Banyan and and Father Marcel Guarnizo talking about different aspects of that. But I think that, you know, when you're talking about the media coverage of this, just getting it back to the media coverage of it, I think that you've got, I mean, I think it's been a mixed bag. I'm actually still, still thinking that they're doing a fairly decent job because it's a moment by moment story. And so they're, more or less sticking to the moment to moment, because I mean things are changing on the ground so fast, it's hard to do anything else. The analysis I've seen has been mostly of the: uh, Is Joe Biden leading from behind? Should he be leading from behind? Is that the best p- position? All wrote about that today. I, I disagree with his take, but I mean it's certainly uh, it's certainly out there. I think I think when you're leading from behind, as uh, strategically. That you you can make a case for that but the problem is with joe biden he leads from behind on everything he's entirely reactive so it's hard yeah. to credit this to a grand strategy it looks more like the eu is moving forward in spite of joe biden especially on sanctions like swift and and some of the other things than um than because he's leading them along that uh, along those lines um you know we and and some of that stuff we re- we won't know for months you know we'll hear more about the the you know the behind the scenes stuff and who said what to whom later on. So some of this is still fog of war, even though we're not actually involved in the war. But I mean, for the most part, I'd say that the media coverage has been pretty decent. What's been your assessment? And certainly you could see this at CPAC, you were, you were I'm sure yeah. you were right up close to this.
3: Yeah, they, uh, well, as I sort of hinted before, I, I haven't sat for hours and watched it and studied it but right. every time every time i see it i'm struck even by the veterans with the golly g aspect of it right you know you know i mean the all oh, explosions and bombs and we see the same tank crossing the same bridge over and over and over again i know you don't have film uh a lot of or at least at the beginning didn't have a lot of film but it's like, wow, look at this. Here's a burn tank. Uh, and then they show jets flying over and identify, misidentify them. Um, <laughs> it's it's uh, I don't know, It just it doesn't seem very informed. It, it seems more like, uh, wow, there's a real war going on here. And there's a lot of explosions and fires. And, and it, it, it's the only way we can see it is through their eyes and through their camera lenses. Um, And I guess we should be thankful for any of it. It seems kind of strange to uh, have film up close. Well, it's not really up close, but uh, sort of up close uh, in the in the actual fighting. I mean, we see the aftermath and it's still smoking, so it's not been a long time. Uh, But uh, And I don't imagine the Ukrainians are steering reporters to the vehicle tanks and stuff that planes that they've lost. Um, And I was impressed. (laughs) This is what you do when you're uppity uh, with the Ukrainians uh, had a mission. They they sent uh, commandos and planes in and attacked a Russian base, air base about 20 miles inside Russia. (laughs) Right. (laughs) and you know it's not going to change the course of the battle but it is kind of like hey we're here um and there's a difference you know if uh, it's the same thing in sports and in war russian soldiers are conscripts plain right. and simple ukrainians and all the ones that are that are uh, uh joining up they're they're motivated and you know they may not be the most skillful uh uh tacticians or whatever but they've got a big heart and a lot of courage um yeah that's a morale I, I, issue right
0: i mean this is this is yeah. part of the whole this is part of the whole morale of the fighting forces i mean you got morale high on the ukrainian side in part because they're succeeding and they're not necessarily beating the russians but they're succeeding in, in grinding them down to a stalemate which is yeah. uh, which is for quite the, an
3: accomplishment It's
0: quite an yeah. accomplishment on the other hand, as you say, you have the conscripts, and you know there was this um, very interesting uh, UN speech today. The the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN read a text. I don't know if you had a chance to see this because I know you were traveling no. today. You no. should, if you get a chance. I, I posted it earlier. Got tons of tons of page views. But he posted in. A, I'm going to I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not sure if this has been confirmed yet or not. This is a claim by the Ukrainians. Um, that they captured, well, uh, they didn't capture, uh, a dead Russian soldier um, had a cell phone, a smartphone on him, and they they, they got the smartphone, looked at the text messages, and it was the text messages, the purported text messages anyway, that the UN ambas- Ukraine's UN ambassador was reading out to the UN General Assembly earlier today. And uh, it was, you know, his mother wanted to know if she could send him uh, a package while he was in on you know training maneuvers in crimea and he was saying mama we're in ukraine and you know they told us that we'd be welcomed uh here but people are calling us fascists they're laying down in front of our tanks um it's very bad and then he was killed moments later uh so <clears throat> uh, yeah don't uh, don't text and drive well <laughs> You know, don't text and go into war. But I mean, part of this—I mean, just to speak to the morale, the the sense of morale—is that you've got young conscripts who haven't been battle-tested. I mean, we talk about the Russian military as a battle-tested unit because they, you know, they fought in the Russians fought in Afghanistan. They fought a long
3: time ago, but it was
0: a long time ago. They fought in Chechnya. That was a long time ago. They don't even have a, you know. Uh, an NCO corps that's been around long enough to have um, to have benefited from that experience, let alone an officer corps, let alone the let alone the, the enlisted corps. And it's very clear, I think, right now that this is an army that really doesn't hasn't. It's it's poorly generaled, It's badly trained. Its morale is really low. And I think that the longer this goes on, the worse that particular issue gets, and it matters yep. in a war.
3: Yeah oh yeah I I absolutely agree with you 100%. You know it reminded me that uh, Biden is in over his head and I think maybe the Russian soldiers are Putin may not be I I he's a wily guy and I I credit remember in 2012 the last debate Mitt Romney said Russia is a very serious strategic competitor and obama and and biden both made fun of him say well the the cold war called and they want uh, they want you back Uh, but romney had clear eyes about it Uh, and um, it's not the old soviet union which wasn't as strong as we feared at the time Uh, but um, i'm hoping and i'm suspecting but i have no uh inside information that that we have that our military has um ghosts in in uh, in crimea who who may be training uh some some crimea uh, not crimea in ukraine who may be training ukrainians but are certainly studying soviet tactics and weapons and finding out their weak spots and it looks like the Stingers and Javelin missiles that we sent and others sent uh, are taking uh, a surprisingly effective toll on the, uh, on the Russians.
0: Well, in part, this gets back to, I mean, I don't want to get deep in the weeds because I'm not a military expert, but I've been reading from military experts looking at this. And in part, it's because the Russians are failing, you know, You know, armored. You know, armored. Armor warfare 101, which is that when you send in armored units, you have to send in mechanized infantry along with them in order to protect the armored units. Um, Because when people start firing things like javelin missiles, you need the infantry on hand to take them out. And instead, they're just sending armored units because apparently they just figured that the Ukrainians were just going to run for the hills. And and their armored their armored uh, companies are are getting wiped out. Did you see the? And again. You have to take this stuff with a grain of salt. <clears throat> but did you see the video of the guy in the tractor stealing the Russian yeah. tank?
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just hope it's true. <laughs> I mean, I don't know yeah. if it's true, but I, I just hope it's true because it's just too good. It's just too funny.
3: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, um, uh, you know, they may have uh, fooled themselves or Putin may have fooled them. Into thinking it was going to be easier. That's a very dangerous position to be in. Yep. I only played high school football, but I got to tell you, if you're cocky, <laughs> you're gonna get your clock cleaned. Uh, even if something as innocent as uh, well, it's not always innocent, but uh, as simple as as uh, as sports, uh, and the same thing applies uh, applies there in 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 war. We've got experienced special ops and and others of course some of them are still operating in syria uh, uh, who are who know what they're seeing and uh i uh, we don't want to get cocky over russian inefficiencies or insufficiencies but uh uh, i'm i just hope they're studying the hell out of this and uh, and learning some lessons uh in case this does expand or in case in some future we have a uh, reason to uh, confront them uh, militarily.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we only have a minute left, but I, I just—you mentioned sports. Have you noticed that? Have Have you caught up to all the different uh, all the different sports leagues that is presently kicking Russia yeah. and Belarus? I mean, I Isn't mean that's something. F- FIFA, that's a big deal. I mean, that's World yeah. Cup soccer, and Russia was going to be competitive in that, and they've yeah they, they've kicked them out. The uh, International Olympic Committee at first was just saying, well. You know you, you can't use the because uh, they're already under uh, under suspension for doping uh, but now they've just been kicked out um of of olympic competition in the future we're talking a couple of years from now um so yeah
3: i i mean the the hits just keep on coming for the vladimir thing, putin the thing that drag there was a a piece today uh on, i guess it was the wire service was talking about uh, us governors uh, taking a stand and and then they're vowing that they're uh, not going to buy any Russian vehicles, and everybody should stop buying Russian vodka. And we're still buying 600,000 barrels of Russian oil a day. Yeah, yeah. 650,000. You know, the the um, the Keystone Pipeline would have delivered 800,000 barrels a day. And uh, now we're <laughs> right
0: to our and right, and
3: directly to our refineries didn't even have yeah. to
0: have it shipped there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah,
3: exactly right. I mean, it's so there was a wonderful tweet showing um, a, uh, a pipeline after construction. And it's a beautiful greenway through the forest, grass yeah. growing and everything. And yeah. a titanium mine for your electric car batteries. And it's the ugliest open pit. <laughs> Yeah. Pink Doug. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing. By the way, just one last thing
0: on that. Then we got to get to the jokes of the week. Um uh, Maybe you heard a couple new ones at CPAC. I don't know if they're clean. No, we'll, we'll, no, we'll try. No. Oh, no, okay. Yeah. Uh, but um, this is uh, a statement that just came out from the Walt Disney company. Given the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and the tragic humanitarian crisis, we are pausing the release of theatrical films in Russia. Now, want to guess what the next film that they were going to release in russia was going to be
3: oh
0: what the title is i mean you 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 won't know what the you won't know the film but i mean the title is rather ironic what is it turning red from pixar
3: oh (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good reason to pause that one (laughs) and also maybe not show it in ukraine
0: yeah yeah maybe not (laughs) maybe not all right Let's get to the jokes of the week from the Prince okay. of Twitter and the Regent of Red State.
3: Yep. Well, uh, these are all replays uh, because uh, they're not doing much uh, new stuff. Um, uh, Conan, you know, we got the Academy Awards coming up. Uh, it's Conan replays, eighty. this is some years ago, 82-year-old Christopher Plummer is the oldest actor ever to win an Academy Award. Of course, when last night's show started, he was only 79. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And uh, Jay Leno replay. (laughs) Excuse me. Excuse me. Congratulations to President Obama's former aide, Rahm Emanuel. He's just been elected mayor of Chicago with more than 120% of the vote.
0: Well, that's a, you know, in Chicago, that's a, that's a
3: nail biter <laughs> right there. You know, I got, I'll tell you a story. One of the first times I voted was in Chicago and I was going overseas for graduate studies. And so I voted uh, absentee. And in those days it wasn't the mail-in stuff and all that. Yeah. So I went down to city hall upstairs. The woman gave me the ballot and she said to me, now, when you're done with it, don't seal it. I said, Okay, and I went over to the booth and I started voting and I voted the complete ticket, and uh, probably not the way that the Cook County uh, Paul's would like me to vote. Um, And uh, I, I finished put the ballot in the envelope and on the seal of the envelope, it says, be sure to seal the envelope. So I did. And I took it back and gave it to her and she said, Wait, you sealed the envelope, I told you not to and I said yeah but it says right here i realized later that of course they would have swapped out the ballot if uh yep. if it had been wrong i mean and that was just as blaming i mean it was broad daylight in the elections office and now they gotta wait
0: till you die yeah <laughs> yeah 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 make, uh, hey f- get your revenge make them wait a really long time andrew get, get your revenge on on, on them
3: <laughs> So um oh okay it says uh, Myers replay it says the late fashion designer Carl Lagerfeld uh, reportedly left part of his 125 million dollar fortune to his cat said the cat oh he died <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well there you go i think that's uh i think that's a fine set of uh jokes of the week from Andrew Malcolm at A.H. Malcolm. He is the prince of Twitter at A.H. Malcolm. And, of course, the regent of Red State, (laughs) RedState.com. You can find the link to his uh, posts at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. Uh, But you can go to RedState.com and look for him there as well. Andrew, we'll talk to you next week, sir. Thanks, and welcome back to Seatback, sir.
3: Yeah, thank you. We'll see you then, and thanks, everybody.
0: Thanks, Andrew. We're going to keep on going. Stick around for more.